0: This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. Sit by my side Come as close as the air Sharing a memory of grey. Wander in my world And dream about the pictures I play
1: Of changes For much of the 20th century, Ireland was primarily known as a country of substantial net outward migration. Ireland had the highest net emigration rate in the European Union in the 1980s. But by the year 2002, Ireland had the highest net immigration rate in the European Union. Migrants to Ireland were of every type and condition, and for the purpose of this project, we are going to focus on a very particular group. Poets. Poetic Lives is a six-part series that follows the lives of six poets that, not having been born in Ireland, now live and produce their art in this country. Each programme is a blind date for the interviewer who will only know the poet through the selection of poems and the brief biography sent to him by the poet. Following the path laid by the poems, the interviewer and the poet will talk about the life experiences and interests of the different poets and how they are reflected in the poems. All our guests have three common denominators, poetry, migration and Ireland. From the Far East to America. From Africa to Europe, each poet will talk about expressing their very different experiences through the medium of poetry. Now it is time to listen to today's poet.
2: Protesting the tornado for the Westboro Baptist Church. Tornadoes make no mistakes. We agree on this least of beliefs. That after disasters, walls collapse back to ideas of houses, our careful game docked to basic elements, raw planks, exposed nails. But I need to tell you weather happens, designless. Apocalypse it feels like when the wet and the noise is so much bigger than us, we shivering mutts in this night closet. You sing hymns, things fall apart. You praise the weapon, the rain mountain, reversed into a grinding top, punishment for the new babble of Main Street, USA. You invoke God, the terrorist, and march in his territorial army, stock-arming violent winds alongside firearms, crucifixes, and damning placards. I need to tell you I will not fight you. The way prey does not turn to be consumed by its predator, your species who eats your savior, the instrument of his torture worn at your throat. I'm here to warn you about the end of days, about the delicate finger of chance that comes for us all. Someday it will hover just above your shoulder, without meaning, Your conclusion alone. I'm Jennifer Matthews. I'm an American who has been living in Ireland for over a decade now. I live and work in Cork.
3: Thank you for taking part in this project. Thank you. First of all, I would like to go back to that poem that you just read for us. You are looking at a mix between politics and nature. How that came about?
2: The region that I come from, the Midwest of the USA, those two things are conflated a lot, natural disasters, they can be seen as messages from God. Even the most rational of people in this region often interpret bad things happening as punishment that's due to us. It's part of our Puritan heritage. That's my interpretation of it anyway. And there's some that take it to an extreme. So the tongue-in-cheek dedication at the beginning for the Westboro Baptist Church is, it's a, a poem I wrote to this extremist group after they decided to protest an entire town in my state that was decimated by a tornado. The entire middle of the city was taken out and people were devastated and they decided to come down and say, well, you know, you deserved it because you're all heathens and you're going to hell and isn't God great that he destroyed your town? So I wrote this poem and I sent it to them in the mail. I don't think they got it because I haven't heard from them but I, I really had hoped I'd get something back that I could put on a book someday, like a quote, to <laughs> say.
3: How was growing up in St. Louis, Missouri? What made you start writing poetry?
2: I don't think it was anything specific to the, the region necessarily, but I had the benefit of going to a school where the teachers are really, really excellent, and I happened to take a extra class in poetry at the secondary school I went to, um, and the teacher really gave us... A lot of inspiration about how to write contemporary poetry that wasn't mired in sort of forms that we wouldn't relate to. So this teacher really brought out something that I loved, and I continued to do it after that. So is I suppose just the the happy chance of being influenced by that teacher.
3: Then an inspirational teacher has something to answer for in this case.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. For better or for worse, yeah.
3: (laughs) But you left the States Mm. quite young. Yes. And moved over to the other side of the Atlantic. Poetry, that brought you over?
2: Actually, yeah. Yeah, I had graduated my undergraduate studies in Missouri, and I decided that I just wanted to do something a little bit different before I settled down. And so I started applying for creative writing programs abroad. I knew I wanted to leave the U.S. just to experience living elsewhere, and I ended up getting into a program in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the U.K. I decided to do that, and I just never went back home. (laughs) I went for holidays and that kind of thing. It was always my intention to go back and settle, and I kept getting distracted by Fun things over here. After I, I uh, lived in Newcastle, I, I moved over to Cork for a time because I was seeing a, a guy from Cork.
3: Before we go to Cork, <laughs> let, let's listen to what would you have been producing at the time in Newcastle upon time.
2: Um, do you know, I've lost all of my poems from that time from very poor uh, file management. But I have a poem that I wrote about Newcastle. But it's It's a recent poem, but it's about my experience living there. This is about the place that I lived in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Um, it's called Flat Viewings. Careless is a spilled drink, gambled to dry before a dangerous slip. I repeated, no, I chose to reheat what I had been told, as if I had not been born with food stamps in my mouth, as if that silver spoon, no, that tarnished silver-like secondhand spoon, now in my mouth, did not worry my tongue with a blood-like taste of metal. I said... You might want to be careful leaving your car below. I hear this neighborhood isn't the best. The young woman who had so carefully visited this flat to share, who imagined herself in the rooms next to mine, tested the taps, considered the space in the presses, turned to her boyfriend for help, a fireman no less, a man who works to save lives while I was artless, not yet bothered to consciously work the words I studied so carefully. Look, he said, before they left me to close myself in, again in this tower of flats. Out this window, you can see my house from here. Look down, there's my home.
3: This is a view of you looking at yourself a few years later. Yes, yeah. How was the experience as a young woman from the States?
2: It was surprisingly disorienting. I thought I'd be well able, you know, it's, you know, an English-speaking country. You know, it's it's the way that I see a lot of fellow Americans. We come over and we think we just kind of are familiar with everything because we're from the center of the world, right, <laughs> in in our own heads. Um, and you learn quickly when you travel. It's why travel makes you a better person, that you aren't the center of the universe and things happen differently. And in this particular instance, the man who was showing me the flats that I was going to live in took great pains to tell me what a horrible area it was. And... Um, It's one of my many regrets. (laughs) It's just a a poor way to approach people, I suppose, when you're unfamiliar with an area to already form an opinion about it. And I never had a moment's trouble. I always felt very safe and the people were very good to me there. So it was a big lesson for me to not form an opinion and definitely don't share it. before I actually have experience. And I think it's a lot of something that my compatriots could could use as well. You know, this kind of experience is very valuable.
3: Do you usually put your personal experiences in your poems?
2: I do. I use my experience most, and I very much would like to break away from that. I don't want my poems to necessarily all be autobiographical. But at the moment, I think, especially with beginning poets, that's often the way that you have to kind of get your foothold before you break off into something new. So at the moment they are all very from my life.
3: And I was asking that for a very particular reason. I was going to ask you (laughs) to read your next poem, one that is called Panda. Can you give us a background to that one before we go into it?
2: This this poem for me is kind of surprising. It's one of my first successfully written poems after I graduated from my creative writing master's in Newcastle. I wrote it in Cork and it was published in a few different locations, including the Irish Examiner and the Daedalus anthology of immigrant poets called Landing Places. A lot of people have responded to it because I think it's so personal, but they feel they've had a similar relationship with their self-image. It's about a trip I took to visit a friend who was teaching English in China, and we were going to a open-air market where they were going to get handmade dresses made. And I was quite a large girl at the time, and I was like, there's no way I'm going to be measured for this kind of experience. So it's a a poem about poor self-image, I suppose. (laughs) Panda. My girlfriends are surrounded by silks, and I am outside, looking in on this library of the feminine. There are rolls of ruby and cherry blossoms, cool sapphire dragon pools, jade envy forests, manuals to be chosen from just beyond the stall of heady spices in the duyun-covered market. I shuffle softly to hide my girth behind a butcher block table, while the seamstress giggles fingertips to lips at the numbers that measure my friend's willowy western lengths. Their souvenirs, handmade made chi dresses with slender eastern cuts that lend an instant image of exoticness. My souvenir, fear, of the tape wrapped wide round my hips, my thighs, my belly, marking the size of a true panda, Chinese thing for westerner, or the name of an animal which is black-eyed, weary, fumbling, unapproached, unapproaching. The first time it was published, it was in a UK magazine called Mislexia, um, it was a travel issue.
3: And that brings us to Ireland. Before you started <laughs> to mention that you traveled from the UK to Ireland, following some, some Cork lad, and you have finished living in, in Mitchellstown. Yes. Basically. How has been the experience?
2: Oh, it's it's been amazing. I mean, it, it keeps me on my toes to, because I suppose Cork is so cosmopolitan that you never quite feel as much of a, a foreigner as you are. You kind of take it for granted that everybody just knows you and they don't think of you in as a, as an American first. But um, Mitchellstown is definitely owned by the people that live there. And so when you move there, it's on their terms. But in a good way, you're moving into a real community where it's it's got its own sense of identity and they really want to know who you are and where you fit in. You know, I'd, I'd be walking my daughter on a Saturday and, you know, you might have an elderly woman stop and quiz you about who you are, where you're from, who are you related to. Oh, I know that house. Let me tell you about who lived in that house before you. And, I, you know, I love it. It's, it's, it's something unique, and you wouldn't get that in Cork City anymore, you know. So it's keeping me on my toes, and it's reminding me that, yes, I am for it.
3: That rings a bell. I live in East Cork for a while myself. Did you? Okay. Within half an hour of arriving into a town, the whole town knew that we were yes. there, we were there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, gosh, yeah.
2: Yeah, when we were getting deliveries the first month we were there and there were women down the street that we'd never met in our lives directing the the people with the boxes how to get to our house. (laughs) So that's
3: the way it goes. (laughs) Then you mentioned family. Has that changed your poetry?
2: It has improved my focus in writing in that I had vast tracts of time before that I did not use appropriately. And now I have very, very little time, but I'm using it Every, every moment I get I, I wrote a poem on the train which I never would have done you know before I had a child and now it's my hour I get to myself for my two hours and so like you sit down and get to business and no messing around on the internet and I, that's fantastic it's, it's a gift really so two hours of focused work is so much more valuable than you know a month of nothing <laughs> flabby nothing you know
3: now I think that it could be a good time to dedicate the next <sighs> poem to your daughter
2: Tantalus Arms branched for balance, you flap flightless. This is why um, I don't generally read poems about family because I do this every time, even when it's happy. But I thought, this is a really happy poem, I'm not going to do this again.
3: Whenever you are ready.
2: Okay, I take three breaths. <laughs> okay. Tantalus. Arms branched for balance, you flap flightless. Bend to the flesh of the apple I've just bitten open. Gums rake the grainy hollow and press and press again. Nothing breaks. Eyes wide, you suckle what sweetness you can. Well, I promise you something cutting will come through the pink.
3: You are describing the experiences of your daughter, a very young daughter that still cannot... It's something as simple as eating an apple. Yes. Uh, Obviously, that has changed. You were saying it has had to change your work, <laughs> yes,
2: yeah, yeah.
3: It has made you focus the moving in from the states into England, moving from England into Ireland has that affected as well? I think
2: it has changed that because it's giving me a kind of physical and mental distance from the things that I want to write about, and it takes me a long time to process the present, like a lot of people can write about what's immediately going on, and it's that's just now coming to me where I can write about something that happened yesterday. But moving physically away from the States helped me get some perspective on writing about American identity um, in the way that I needed to up to now. I don't think I could have done that easily while living in Missouri. The perspective, the distance and perspective helped. I don't write well about Ireland, and I think maybe that's because I'm, I'm still like in the middle of... Uh, my experience here, but hopefully that'll develop for me because I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) So (laughs) this is where I am now.
3: Yeah, that's actually something that in one of your correspondence with me, you said every time I try to write about Ireland, the poem falls flat. Yes. You need distance But you still can write about your family. That it is right there.
2: I think there's a bit of, especially being an American, because so many Americans come over and they tell Irish people that they are Irish as well and they don't respect that. There's a distinction between an Irish person, an actual Irish person, and, you know, the plastic patty kind of thing where, you know, all the Americans who buy leprechauns and celebrate Patrick's Day, and they they say that that's Irish, and they they don't educate themselves what is actually happening in Ireland. So I think... I'm so proud that I don't try to claim that I acknowledge that I'm American. I don't try to take over an Irish identity while I'm here. That's not due to me. And I think in a way that's blocked me from feeling like I can comment on things that are happening in Ireland, even though I've been living here for a decade. So I think I need to allow myself a certain amount of space to say, okay, I'm not Irish, but I can have an opinion about things that are happening here. You know, so I, I think I'm on the verge of finding that space for myself.
3: Before you do that, you are still producing poems from Ireland about what is happening in the States. Your view from Ireland of the States.
2: This is another tornado poem, but it was commended by Sarah Clancy in the Over the Edge New Writer of the Year competition in 2013. So uh, by way of thanks to her for her acknowledgement, I'll read it. It's called Planning Permission. We built our home on the back of an old god, being lovers of big sky and flat roads. Careful to follow sound practice, we kept far from karst pits, stayed well above flood plains, read our prayers to the bruised sky, and made sure the basement door was unlocked. One night, the wind shifted, and settled Inside me, the baby swam somersaults, and our cats retreated to nowhere. When Cicada's metallic shiver gave way to the kettle cry of the siren, we descended into the god body, our bunker where we knelt on rugs, foreheads to the floor, hands on our crowns as the vortex rumbled and raged above. We crawled at dawn from under the walls we were still paying for, reborn, but we could not find words to praise, surrounded by a litany of blasted windows, a road lined in medals of crumpled cars, and a congregation of deep trees, their long arms pointing away from the
3: earth. Do you think that you will be able to right in a way that will stop us having in the Europeans a very stereotypical vision of the United States as well, because it's it's a two-way street.
2: Yeah, it's... You know, part of me would like to do that, but I would feel slightly selfish because I think... um you know, personally, I would like to get less aggro for being American. <laughs> but there, but we, we, do, we wreak so much havoc on the world that I don't know that it's a priority for the poetry. Do you know what I'm saying? I would like to shift Europeans' sense of what an American is. But I, I try to do that more on a personal level rather than in the poems, because I feel like defending, we'd say, someone who's in a, a position of power in in a majority isn't sort of a great, it's not a great topic for a poem, you know, so like I don't want to defend the poor Americans when we've, we've, that's something we should be doing in our actions, we should be behaving better and then that will affect change and how people perceive us. But it's ironic that you say this, because on the train up, there is an English woman sitting across from me talking about stupid Americans. They don't know how to make chocolate. And she was going on about how Cadbury is being banned. And, you know, there is bad chocolate in the States. But, you know, it's just funny that because we are stupid, we can't make good chocolate. And I was like, will I say something? No, I'm just going to sit here and
3: write my poem. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's the idea that uh, uh, we have a stereotypical yes. views, like both sides. That, uh, not, not everybody uh, conform to, the, to yes. our views. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And before we go with your next poem, can see the title here, Homeland Security, and that will be the end of our conversation. I want you to talk about your job in Cork and oh. what, because it has to do with poetry as well. You more or less would have landed in uh, kind of a dream job for yes. a poet. Yeah,
2: yeah. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I did land, quite fortunately, in a job for the Munster Literature Centre, which hosts a short story festival and a poetry festival in Cork. It it has been a dream job to be able to work in the area that I love. It's not a chance that everybody gets, so...
3: How do you see the, the health of poetry in Ireland? Something
2: I love about Ireland is that last night on TV, I saw an entire program about the nation's favorite poetry that was broadcast on primetime on the main TV station, you would not see that in the States. You know, when I get into taxi cabs and they say, where are you going? And I say, poetry festival. I had a guy literally, a taxi driver, bring out his copy of Yeats and he said, would you mark two or three poems that are your favorites and I'll read those next. That's not an experience I've had anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I think the state of the love of poetry is very healthy and we just need to keep putting the word out there to get people more and more involved in contemporary poetry so that he has the volume of Yeats but he also has, you know, uh, the volume of Palomien as well, you know, in his taxicab and then then we're going well. But uh, it's thriving and we need to keep working to maintain that and grow it.
3: You know that this series is about poets that, having been born outside Ireland, they now have made Ireland their home base. Mm. You are in contact with other poets and poets that produce their art here, a part of poets that you bring for the festival. Do you th- see that increase in poets that are not originally Irish, has that make any difference to the poetry scene in around Cork, that is the one that you will know better? <sighs>
2: I wish I had more perspective as to to see how the influence goes. But I think you're likely to see a lot more foreign poets in the spoken word scene, and we'd say performance poetry. And that's a fantastic thing, because there's a new festival after growing in Dublin called the Lingo Festival, which I know uh, would welcome people from all over the world. And I admire how much we'd say new poetry is moving in a, in a direction of, of spoken word. It's performative. They engage with the audience. And while that's not one of my strengths, I admire people who it is. There's a woman who was selected for the Poetry Ireland Introductions last year named Erin Fornoff. What I saw of her online was fantastic. So I think foreign poets are able to slot into what's happening here. And, and maybe that's a new, new trend for
3: people who are new arrivals in Ireland. Foreign poets as well, they come up with their own baggage, many times their own language. Mm. And in your case, and in the case of the next poem that I'm going to ask you to read, <laughs> it comes with a uh, cultural baggage yes. that for us could sounds really, really strange and really, really uh, (laughs) like out of place or not not making much sense. Like I I would feel like uh, if I didn't have your explanation about this next point, I will miss it altogether. Then, can you first read it and then can you explain that poem?
2: That's a good idea. Homeland security. The highest law is home, and a man got to protect his young. A fist can feed. I mean, it can catch a catfish, and the best meals, believe me, are the daddies. Their bodies are big tongues, they sense your hand in their nest before it connects. Be ready, he don't wait for you to get at the eggs. He strikes first, charges through mud, jaws clamp down on your arm to draw blood. He'll fight you, you got to be strong enough to pull him out the river, throw him on the bank, fins gaspin' and flapping. Mind you, this is the old way, but if it ain't broke, when you're home, Get your hammer and nail the head to a post in the yard, skin him, strip his insides out. Your lady can roll his flesh and cornmeal and pepper, fry it up for a nice family dinner. I can nearly mark a calendar from all them spines lined along the fence, months of keeping our Fridays holy. Only problem we got now when it comes to night, when me and my family are all tucked in, there's something in the rotting stink it calls to them that gnaw on bones, no matter how clean I cut him.
3: From the title, I would have expected something totally different. <laughs> I have to admit. What is this mix between homeland security mm. and fish catching?
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. It's um, yeah. So I might talk about the fishing part briefly yeah. first. So it was partially inspired by I've I saw these ridiculous photos online where rural parts of my state some people nail the the skeletons of catfish to their 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 fences and i could not like i could not find an explanation as to why people did this and so um you know i tried to guess what was going on there and then i started learning more about the the way that some people in rural Missouri fish for catfish is they use their fist they punch into a nest and the fish thinks it's a predator and so it clamps onto the arm in self defense and they pull it out of the river on their arm and it's a very dangerous form for the person and it's also just crazy and probably harmful painful to the fish so it just it reminded me a bit of the aggressive foreign policy that we have in America, that it's kind of this preemptive strike that we're so fond of. And I wanted to look at this technique of fishing as a way of exploring American character, the dance of uh, who's the prey, who's the predator, you know, and are we provoking something that's unnecessary? And what's the consequence of it you know when we're nailing up the bodies on the fences what's going to come you know afterwards so I'm not sure if that's the clearest response to foreign policy in America but it's it's an image that struck me and I wanted to look at what it did on a gut level um, and so that's why I I called it Homeland Security to kind of put that in the mind of like I'm, I'm talking about this topic but I'm exploring it in a very slide way
3: I'm looking forward to the day when you start producing something similar (laughs) to this Homeland Security, to Irish life and politics. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot. I think that that's more or less what we have time for. Thank you. Where in
0: hell can you go? Far from the things that you know. Far from this concrete sprawl that keeps crawling its way About a thousand miles a day Take one last look behind Commit this to memory and mind
1: Thanks to Jennifer Matthews for sharing her poetry with us. In today's programme, the interview was carried out by Iñaki and he will be back next week with another poet in the next programme of Poetic Lives. But to find out who will be next week's poet, our listeners will have to tune in to Near FM 90.3. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked this week's programme of Poetic Lives and that you will tune in again next week.
0: This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.